Well, this is going to be a little bit of a different message this morning, but I wanted to bring it to you on a Sunday morning because I think it impacts all of us. We have been on Sunday evenings involved in a long-running series entitled Defending Your Faith. And during the first portion of our series, we spent a considerable amount of time taking what I called an offensive approach, that is, dealing with what we believe as Christians, proactively engaging our Bibles to see what we in the Christian faith believe about Christianity. We spoke about the great doctrines of the Christian faith, endeavoring to learn once again what Christianity is all about so that we might take a much more proactive approach to people we're witnessing to. And then we took the next several messages in that series, Defending Your Faith, to explore from a defensive posture. That is how we would seek to answer those who would approach us with what they believe. Maybe someone would come to a door, knock on that door, and you would be on the other side of that door, and they would begin to tell you what they believe. And you would have then the opportunity to try to explain Christianity to them and how you would then respond to their questions about what they believe. We took a number of weeks to talk of several of the major cults and how we would counteract their claims of truth. And as a part of that defensive posture, we branched out even further and we began to look even beyond the cults to the world's great religions. You remember we studied Judaism, we looked at Roman Catholicism, we looked at Islam, we looked at Buddhism looking at all of them to see what it is they believe. And now we come to the last in that little series, Defending Your Faith, Hinduism. Hinduism. Now, unlike some of the other studies that we've had in this series, I want to give you a general perspective of something that is sweeping the western part of our world and has for some time. And although Hinduism is a part of it, it transcends even Hinduism, transcends the bounds of what we've historically understood as traditional Hinduism. And that's why I want to bring it to you this morning, because it affects all of us. It's a movement as old as an ancient heresy called Gnosticism, Gnosticism, something that had its partial roots even in the Apostle John's day, growing to full-blown proportions by the second century. It has also been sometimes known as paganism. Paganism. And now is known in our own day as the New Age movement. Now, it's interesting. All of these things, Gnosticism, paganism, Hinduism, and the New Age movement all have several key elements which are common to all four of those groups. And if we were to allow them to have the sway that it seems as though they have been having for a long time, it's going to continue to wreak havoc in the body of Christ. And that's why we must be aware of all of these things, all of these terms. And I want to give you this morning, probably only having time for Gnosticism and paganism, I want to give you a little bit of a background on those things so that you can understand. Now, this is not going to be a sermon per se, 
but I really don't want it to be a lecture either. But I want you to see that even though some of these things are ancient in their origins, they have a very, very definite impact on what we see in our own world today. And I want to talk, first of all, about Gnosticism. Gnosticism. It looks like N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, but it has a G in the front of it. Gnosticism. And while it's difficult to precisely define all of the aspects of the origins of Gnosticism, virtually all of the scholars who have studied this ancient religion agree that by the second century it flowered into a major religion, a major force to be reckoned with. Now the Gnostics, by the way that word Gnosticism or Gnostics comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which means to know, were a group of people who believed they had secret knowledge. A secret knowledge that was attainable by those who had become enlightened to understand truth. Gnosticism itself centers in on the right understanding of evil in the world and how that evil is to be understood, especially in light of creation. Now, in one form of Gnosticism, which had its early origins in the Mesopotamian region of our world, what we would call Iran today, there were two prime deities, light and darkness. And light and darkness, these two warring deities, were locked in a cosmic struggle for control of the universe. This is what Gnosticism believes. Light and darkness warring against each other. Does this sound a little familiar to you? Does it sound like something you may have heard before, this light and darkness fighting against each other? Does it sound a little bit like, like the movies Star Wars? Well, that is precisely the background for the making of those movies. You probably didn't know that. Gnosticism, Buddhism especially, is the basis upon which the movies are based. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. George Lucas did not come up with all of that on his own. He discovered it from the ancient heresy called Gnosticism. And according to Gerald Borchert, he says this, This struggle, this Gnostic struggle, has been positionalized by the fact that since light transcends itself and shines beyond its own realm, light particles were subjected to capture by its jealous enemy, darkness. In order to launch a counterattack and recapture its lost particles, therefore light gives birth to or emanates a series of subordinate deities that are emanated for the purpose of doing battle. This is their religion. This is what they believe. This is the origin of creation in the Gnostic's mind. In defense, darkness likewise sets in motion a comparable birthing of sub-deities and arranges for the entombment of the light particles in a created world. This cosmic realm becomes the sphere of combat of the protagonists. The object for the struggle is the winning of the human beings who bear the light particles and the effecting of their release from the prison of this world so that they may hereafter re-enter the sphere of heavenly light. What does all that mean? Well, it means this. These two deities were warring, 
And they were warring for the souls of human beings who were nothing more than light particles that had been shining off of the God light. And darkness also wanted the souls of these human beings, and so they would war for those light particles, those emanations, and they would send out sub-deities in order to try to capture those human beings forever, because when those human beings then were captured, whether it be from light or darkness, they would then be delivered. They would be delivered from this world. Gnostics believe that spirit is good and that matter is evil. And it was in 1948, very significant year, that there was a major discovery in Egypt near the town of Hag Hammadi, Nag Hammadi, Egypt. Forty-seven Gnostic documents, scriptures they were called in the Gnostic religion. These are not the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, but a different set of documents which help us define what some of the early Gnostics believe. This is a major find in religion. The Nag Hammadi texts are very, very important. If you do any kind of reading in religion, if you were to go to a Bible school or, or a university and take a course in religion, you would have to read in some of these texts and find out what the Gnostics believe, because these were their scriptures, at least some of those in that Mesopotamian region. Dr. Peter Jones, professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in California, who came here recently to Little Rock and gave a class in which I and others attended, is probably the most noted evangelical scholar on the merging of Gnosticism and present-day New Age thought. And he writes of the origins of Gnosticism and its antagonism against Christianity. This is what he says. Historically, the Gnostics escaped their cosmic struggles by throwing off the shackles of the Old Testament and of the God of Israel. So you have to remember that this even predates Christ going into the history of the Old Testament and all of these nations outside of Judaism had what they believed was a proper view of the origins of the world. And they discounted what the God of the Bible, the God of Judaism, said was the way creation truly came about. In this newfound freedom, they reinterpreted the New Testament, that is, when the New Testament came around, according to the religious worldview of the pagan culture around them. Just as the Spirit endowed Eve saved Adam, this is what Gnosticism believes, just as the Spirit endowed Eve saved Adam, so final salvation will be brought through female power. Is it beginning to become clearer to you? According to the Nag Hammadi text, Hypostasis of the Archons, Archons means angels, Dame Wisdom, the heavenly Eve, enters the snake called the Instructor, and teaches Adam and Eve the true way of salvation. You see what they're doing? They're taking the creation account and they're absolutely turning it on its head. Eve is really the, the salvation force. Satan is called the great instructor. And Eve is the one who will finally bring the true way of salvation. Another Nag Hammadi text on the origin of the world describes the serpent as the one who is wiser than all of them. This is a recurring theme in the Gnostic literature. The serpent is the redeemer. The God of Scripture is the evil usurper. Light, darkness. 
It is further argued that when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he was showing, whether he realized it or not, that the serpent in the garden was Christ. Now, of course, this is not the teaching of Christianity. It's not the teaching of how the Bible records the nature of true creation. We know, of course, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know, of course, that Adam sinned, Eve sinned as well. Eve is not the ultimate or final way of salvation. The serpent is not the instructor, at least not with a capital I. And Christ, of course, is not that which Gnosticism believes he is. In fact, even in sort of a proto, a, a beginning type of Gnosticism, John was dealing that, the apostle dealing with that, the apostle John in 1 John. That's why he says in chapter 1, that which our hands handled. Remember, spirit good, matter evil. He's saying we touched Christ, we, we handled him. He's not evil. Gnosticism was a complete reversal of the Genesis account. And that is why Gnosticism was so dangerous to Christianity. That's why some of the earlier heresiologists, those who were the studiers of heresy, spoke so intently against Gnosticism. You might have heard of the uh, early church father, Irenaeus. He charged the Gnostics with leading people astray by manipulating the true story of creation, by twisting Scripture to fit their own meanings. Another, Tertullian, said this, What indeed has Athens, Greek mythology, to do with Jerusalem, Christianity? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Away with all attempts to produce a mottled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. In other words, you can't add anything to Christianity. Uh, you can't change the story. Uh, you can't uh, put in this and leave out that. And if you don't think this, this has anything to do with us today in the 21st century, including the making of movies and the writing of books which are teaching these things, think again. Dr. Jones details how these teachings are being subtly brought into the Western Hemisphere. For instance, in his fascinating book, The Gnostic Empire Strikes Back, which, by the way, I checked and we have six copies that were in our in our storage room, and they're out there on the information booth if you want to pick this great book up. And the Gnostic Empire Strikes Back, and by the way, that's the first book that he's written. The second is called Spirit Wars, and the third he's writing now, and that's called Return of the Rabbi. He says this, Mythology is making a comeback. Not the modern kind, such as there's a giant alligator living in the sewers of Manhattan, but the ancient mythology of Egypt, Greece, and Rome. Professor Giovanni Filaramo, a noted authority on ancient Gnosticism, states that in our contemporary culture, we are witnessing a rediscovery of Gnosis. The highly regarded German specialist Hans Jonas, in his definitive work, The Gnostic Religion, describes the formation of Gnosticism in the centuries just before the birth of Christ as the meeting of the mysticism of ancient Eastern religions with the rational culture of the Greek West. Jones says, as far as I can tell, Shirley MacLaine has not read Jonas. But her observation makes me think 
that we are reliving today the same kind of conditions as those prevailing at the time of the early church. In my opinion, McLean says, this new age is the time when the intuitive beliefs of the East and the scientific thinking of the West could meet and join. The twain wed at last. For me, both are necessary and both are desirable. In the same way, Joan says, Tal Brook, who has a wonderful ministry called the Spiritual Counterfeits Project out in Berkeley, who was himself a Hindu mystic, he was a proto-New Ager of the 60s, now converted to Christianity. He described his own mystical experiences through LSD and Indian Hinduism as a composite of the best of the East, blended with the most radical breakthroughs of the West, the new physics, new forms of psychology, and all sorts of spiritual technology. The new spirituality of the West is, according to Theodore Razak, a New Age spokesman, quote, the greatest adventure of our age, and quote, the reclamation and renewal of the old Gnosis. It's coming back. It's coming back in grand style, and people don't even realize it. And I, like one of those of old in Isaiah's time, need to be a watchman on the wall to tell you what's going on, to tell you what to watch out for. All of these philosophies, all of these explanations of the origins of the universe, they're taking on new dress, beloved, and we don't even know they're around. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. This is precisely what Paul was talking about and may even have in mind in this text a form or at least the initial stages of a heresy called Gnosticism. This may even be part of the syncretistic blending of religions in Paul's own day. Notice what he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Just stick in there Gnosticism. Pagan religion. Pagan philosophy, man-made realities, man-made worldviews. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through these things. According to the tradition of men, the elementary principles of this world. Look at verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? 
This is what he says about those religions in his own day. These are matters, verse 23, which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, they may be highfalutin. They may have great sounds to them. They may have great ideas. It may have the appearance of wisdom, but it cannot restrain the sinfulness of the human heart. This is Gnosticism. And it's coming to us today like a flood. And it has a sister. Or maybe a, an aunt we could call paganism. Paganism. That's the second thing I want you to know today. Paganism. Like ancient Gnosticism, paganism, which is a much broader term than the word Gnosticism, was a word like in the New Testament term Gentiles that spoke of the non-Jews who had also attempted to understand the origins of the universe. We say pagans today when we talk about someone who's simply a non-Christian. But the idea of paganism back in that day was someone who had a, a world and life view that was specifically antagonistic to Christianity. They were people who believed that man was the center of all things, not God. In fact, the term pagan, you might be interested to know, comes from the Latin term paganus, which means of the earth. These people are of the earth. They have man-made thoughts about God. They themselves elevate themselves to the place of God. Those who are pagans understand the origins of the earth as having come from within themselves. It would have referred this term paganism to those who differed from the view of the Jews that Yahweh was the creator. Merrill Tenney, longtime professor at Wheaton College, wrote this. Listen very carefully. Paganism is the human attempt to satisfy an inner longing for God by the worship of a deity which will not obstruct one's desire for self-satisfaction. You see, if self-satisfaction is the goal, I'm going to create a God who satisfies myself. The gods that men worship are of their own making, whether visible or invisible. Paganism is a parody and a perversion of God's original revelation to man. It retains many basic elements of truth, but twists them into practical falsehood. Divine sovereignty becomes fatalism. Grace becomes indulgence. Righteousness becomes conformity to arbitrary rules. Worship becomes empty ritual. Prayer becomes selfish begging. The supernatural degenerates into superstition. The light of God is clouded by fanciful legend and by downright falsehood. The consequent confusion of beliefs and of values left men wandering in a maze of uncertainties. Isn't that so true about our own world today? People who are making up stories, making up accounts, whether it be of creation or about themselves or the origins of the universe. Does evolution come to mind? You cannot read, beloved, the history of the Jews, whether you read even secular sources or the Old Testament, without seeing 
that they were constantly being influenced by the paganism around them, often adopting it outright and denying Yahweh altogether, following after foreign gods, believing what that particular group that they were in bondage to believed about the origins of the universe. Tinney wrote this also, The four centuries which elapsed between the time of the exile, 606 to 586 B.C., and the rise of the Maccabees, 186 B.C., brought a radical change in the religious life of the Jewish people. Prior to the exile, the fundamental monotheism taught by Moses in Deuteronomy 6.4 and the essential ethic of the Ten Commandments had been obscured by the infiltration of foreign cults. The introduction of foreign shrines into Jerusalem by the alien wives of Solomon. The establishment, <coughs> excuse me, the establishment of bull worship in the northern kingdom under the revolt of Jeroboam. The later corruption from the propagation of Baalism by Jezebel of Tyre and by Manasseh of Judah had perverted the uniqueness and purity of the revelation of Jehovah. They turned it on, they turned it on its head. They completely, although with elements of truth, subverted the creation account. They denied that it was Yahweh, Jehovah God of the Bible, and began to come up with all of their own theories. And then the Jews, following after those foreign deities, bought the thing hook, line, and sinker. And so do we. So do we, and especially in America. Today, paganism is no different. It's an attempt to discredit Christianity, to interpret all of life in non-Christian terms. How often do you hear someone try to explain the origins of the universe without a scant reference to God at all? All natural causes, all scientific. Greg Singer writes this, It is a frank repudiation of the Scriptures and the Gospel message and a deliberate attempt to construct a world and life view on some other basis in which man is the focus of attention. That's paganism. Man is supreme. Man is in charge. So man will figure out a way to explain the origins of the universe to his own liking. Well, you might say, well, I understand Gnosticism. I understand, I understand paganism. What does it look like today? Well, Dr. Jones is so helpful here, and I'm indebted to him. He describes for us what we might call today monism. Monism. M-O-N-I-S-M. Monism. What is it? Well, I'm going to give you five things as we close. Five things. Five things that describe present-day Gnosticism and present-day paganism under the general banner of a term called monism. Of course, you know that the idea of monism is from the Greek word mono or mono, and it means one. And that's the essential characteristic of what we see today in a man-centered religion, whatever label it might have. There are five key principles of monism, and the first is this, all is one and one is all. That's the first principle of monism. All is one, and one is all. This means that there's no distinction between the creature and the creator. And beloved, that's important. Because when you come to the place where you no longer see a distinction between the creator and the creation, 
then you've begun the slippery slope to a man-made religion. He has, has Dr. Jones, summarized a lot of what he has said in those three books in a very, very helpful small booklet called Gospel Truth, Pagan Lies. This is what he says on page 18. This is how it relates to what we're doing today. You think you go to a, a movie, you think it's harmless, you think there's nothing really going on, uh, maybe you even take your family and you show up at the Disney movie Lion King. Here's what he says. In the Disney movie Lion King, everything in the universe is a part of a mass of energy. There is no creator. The circle of life swallows up God. Many non-Christian faiths use circles as a means of expressing this all-is-one philosophy. Sometimes represented in that hologram. Looks like a star, but it's really a circle around a hologram. It's the idea that the circle of life is all there is. There's nothing outside the circle. There is no God that's transcendent above, outside the Creator God. Hinduism, goddess worship, New Age Taoist physics, witchcraft, and the parliament of, world's, of the world's religions all show universal unity with circles. Every one of them, in their religious paraphernalia, have the idea of a circle. Now, I went to see The Lion King. It is very, very prominent, this philosophy, in what is said by the witch doctor, Rafiki. This circular, all-is-one notion inspires deep ecology and the worship of bewitching, encircling Mother Earth. It's true. All you have to do is sit down, watch The Lion King... And see that there's a philosophy being taught you, and if you're not careful, you don't even see it. A similar notion appears in the movie Star Wars. Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Jedi warrior, explains to young Luke Skywalker in language like that of a pagan priest or priestess. Quote, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Never thought I'd be quoting Obi-Wan Kenobi from the pulpit. He says to Luke Skywalker, the force, now notice this, the force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. It is all powerful and controls everything. You think we're just talking about a harmless movie? George Lucas, the creator and director of the Star Wars films, by the way, the most watched series of films in the history of mankind. No one has watched any movie other than the Star Wars movies that many times. And since he is the maker of all those and the creator of all those, he, quote, wanted to introduce Buddhism to the West, unquote. That was his reason for making those films. Jones writes, when Luke, that is Luke Skywalker, abandons himself to his intuitions, he is able in harmony with the force to pilot a complex flying machine in a pinpoint bombing of the headquarters of the evil empire. So in Star Wars, the dark side of the force is not evil, but just the other side, like the yin and the yang of Buddhism. Unquote. It's true. You look at that. You find out even who is Luke Skywalker's father, Darth Vader. You see, he's 
not really a part of evil as though evil is distinct from good. It's all coming from the same. It's light and darkness. It's the force and the dark side. It's the recapturing of the light particles that emanate in a circle of life so that when it's captured, we can be free. But what does Scripture say? The Scriptures say that everything is either light or darkness that does not come to us outside of ourselves, that really it's all from the same source, that the force is an energy field created by all living things, or is creation that creation of God? That's what our Bibles say. Look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24 tells us the truth. It's not a Buddhistic energy force. It's not a yin and a yang. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You see, God is above it. God is not just a part of the circle of life. God is not just within ourselves. In Isaiah chapter 55, God tells us about Himself. He's not subject to us. He's not been created by us. Isaiah 55 verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God is above us. He transcends us. He's the Creator, and He is separate from His creation. You know, when I look at some of these movies, seeing the philosophy that they espouse, I can't help but thinking of Romans chapter 1. That which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His, that is God's, invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they knew that there was a a supreme one, they knew that there was someone other than themselves, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. For they became futile in their speculations. Boy, isn't that true? And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That sounds like a movie about to be made. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Listen to this. For they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. That's Gnosticism. That's paganism. That's the lie. They've exchanged the truth for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Monism says all is one and one is all. There's a circle of life. This is all there is, folks. And we're all a part of it. And of course, within Hinduism, 
You hope to be reincarnated in a different form. All of this has very, very common elements with Gnosticism, Paganism, Hinduism, and the New Age movement. Here's the second aspect of monism. Humanity is one. All is one and one is all. Here's the second. Humanity is one. If all is one, then humanity by logic is one. And if humanity is one, then we're all part of God. We too have divine oneness with Him. Quote, Human beings can dominate the limitations that the physical imposes upon them and thus create themselves. Hindu meditation on the second charka reveals the following fundamental understanding. This is Hinduism. The body is basically an aggregate of universal particles. Does that sound like Gnosticism? Light particles? The body is basically an aggregate of universal particles that one's higher self has sculpted to experience physical existence and truly fulfill its purpose for that lifetime. When the mission is completed, the particles disperse to become part of the earth. Paganism of the earth. That's what Hinduism teaches. Shirley MacLaine, out on a limb, or as I say, out on a broken limb. Here's what she says, quote, God lies within, and therefore we are each part of God. Since there is no separateness, we are each godlike, and God is in each of us. We are literally made up of God energy. Therefore, we can create whatever we want in life because we are each co-creating with the energy of God, the energy that makes the universe itself, unquote. Is that true? Not according to my Bible, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. I can't create my own universe. I can't create my own God-likeness. I can't create my own reality. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Why does Paul speak of Christ as Creator and then go into intimate detail about all those things, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, why does he make it that specific? Because if he doesn't, if he just says God is creator of all things, what will pagans do? They'll begin to say, well, he is a co-creator, but I create too. I create my own reality. In reading one of the instances where one of Shirley MacLaine's daughters had a, a teacher who died in a, a car crash, a hideous car crash, when apprised of that, Shirley MacLaine said, because of what she believes, why would she want to choose to die that way? In other words, you have the ability, you have the power to create life. You have the ability to, to set the tone on how you die. Why would she do that? It reminds me of the passage where God says, you thought I was just like you. I wish we had time to go into Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 42. Read that on your own sometime and find out what God says about creation. He even says it in the context of the foreign gods 
He says it in the context of the Jews not remembering that He's the Creator. And He goes through chapter by chapter and says, Is it not I, God, who's created? You didn't do this. You didn't create this. I created this. Effectively negating every one of these thoughts of Gnosticism and paganism. Third principle of monism. All religions are one. This, of course, is the strategy of Satan. It's to build a one-world religion. We're fast on our way to that. There'll be a growing desire to unite around one religion. Why? Well, monism says, principle number one, all is one, one is all. All mankind is one. All religions are one. According to Paul Knitter, professor of theology at Xavier University in Cincinnati, quote, the world's religions are evolving out of the microphase of religious history in which the various traditions grew and consolidated in relative isolation from each other. The direction today is towards a macrophase in which each religion will be able to grow and understand itself only through interrelating with other religions, unquote. He sounds as though that's just the way it's going to be. We're, we're, we're out of the micro phase into the macro phase. We're out of everybody uh, being on their own in their religious quest. Now we're all coming together. I remember so well, not just hearing from Dr. Jones in that class that I mentioned, but also talking to him at a lunch during that week of class. And he told me of this experience in attending the 1993, he did, Parliament of the World's Religion Conference in Chicago. Here's what he said about it. There were 6,000 delegates, 6,000, 250 religious leaders and 120 religions and sects helping to promote unity through spiritual communion. Dr. Jones says it was not a parliament. Parliaments are representative bodies that debate, propose competing and contradictory ideas and vote. Not here. It was not representative. For historic Christianity was absent. The Chicago event was a religious festival, a consciousness-raising happening of shared pagan spirituality. He was there. He saw it. Delegates were obliged to practice unity in syncretistic interfaith celebrations that the Apostle Paul would doubtless have called fellowship with demons. Singing, leaning on the everlasting arms, I suddenly stopped. The everlasting arms of Jesus had been unceremoniously amputated. The crowd now sang the unforgettable lines, Oh, what fellowship, oh, what joy divine, I can feel the fellowship all around. Talking about the Chicago weather or the hard chairs in the cavernous hall, people around me were friendly, but their common bond was syncretistic convergence. Buddhist monks chanted, the high priestess to Venus gave a ponderous pagan blessing. Delegates danced round the hall to the beat of drums led by an American Indian shaman. Chicago demonstrated that liberal Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, worshippers of Isis, and witches of the covenant of the goddess do have comparable earth-based spiritual experiences. Human friendship had become the fellowship of humanistic, pagan spirituality. Unquote. 1993. Is this predicted in Scripture? Yes. 
this kind of thing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read this in verse 8. This is, this is what God tells us. This is what's happening. This is ultimately what is going on. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of its mouth, of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, amazing verse, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. These people are deluded. How else could you gather all of these world religions and not have utter contradictions among them? The fourth monistic principle is this, the obliteration of all distinctions. Doesn't that stand to reason? If all is one and one is all, if mankind is one, if all religion is one, then all distinctions are obliterated. They're bound and determined to obliterate all distinctions. All you have to do is watch television. Listen to Oprah Winfrey. She is the, she is the greatest leader today of spirituality in the world. That program is so influential... And she has anyone and everyone. She has all kinds of people on that program that espouse all kinds of views. And it's all accepted. It's all blended. All the distinctions are blurred. All of the issues of definition and truth and demarcation and dividing are gone. Ultimately, these distinctions will be obliterated in time. Creator-creature, God-man... Animals, humans, right, wrong, life, death, heaven, hell, Christ, Satan, sin, holiness, the Bible and other sacred writings, orthodoxy and heresy, Christianity and paganism, male, female, traditional families and alternative families, child and parent, authority and submission. And do I need to give you examples of all of those? And how all of those distinctions are now being obliterated before our very eyes. Some of them are more prominent than others. Of course, the male-female, the traditional family and alternative families. This is on us. I don't know how long we have. I know this, 1 Timothy 4.1 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And here's the fifth and last point of monism. Always look within. Always look within. For the monist, all the answers you need are to be found within you. Because you're the center of the universe, all the answers lie within you. Remember I spoke about the Lion King? In the Lion King, the young Simba 
Distressed by conflict and a lack of identity, lies in a field contemplating the stars. Thanks to the deep mystical wisdom of Rafiki, the witch doctor, Simba experiences a coming of age. He has a father-slash-mother-earth revelation and identifies the stars and later his own reflection in a pool as is father. It's right there. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says don't look within. Please don't look within. Look away from yourself. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Do not trust, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that it is by God's grace that we are saved, and that not of ourselves. Not by looking within Jeremiah 9 says, if we're to boast in our wisdom, we're to be damned. But if we boast in the Lord, we'll be saved. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against what is true about God. Beloved, that's exactly what I'm doing this morning. I am attempting by the power of the Word of God to destroy lofty speculations and those things, fortresses, Paul calls them, that are raised up against what is true about God. It's, it's against God. It denies God. It denies the God of creation. It says there's an endless circle of life. In fact, that's the theme song for Lion King. It's a circle of life. But we're to destroy those things. And we're to take every thought captive to what? The obedience of Christ. Don't look within. Look away. Look to Christ. Look away from yourself. Are you guilty of believing any of these points of monism? Have you allowed yourself to be subtly influenced by what at first glance appears to be a harmless book or a movie but in reality is a deadly strategy of Satan. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This is a, this is a scheme. This is a worldwide phenomenon. And this is what Dr. Jones says in conclusion. This is the bottom line. History, albeit diabolical history, is repeating itself before our very eyes. We can therefore begin to understand the changes taking place in our contemporary culture. The Earth Summit, homosexuality, feminism, mandated cultural and ethical diversity, etc. are not unrelated phenomena associated with the chaotic transmutation of our modern, unstable society. As various hues of the same rainbow, they are all deeply related aspects of a coherent religious agenda whose goal is the creation of a new humanity made in the image of the God of this world. Remember, Satan is the instructor. This bottom line should convince you to take the New Age movement with utmost seriousness. 
Every Christian should be involved in understanding the nature of this redoubtable adversary in order both to avoid being trapped by one or more of the programs on offer and to rethink one's own faith and witness in the light of this pernicious heresy. Boy, it is out there. You you can't scarcely drive down the street, watch the television, read the news, talk to a friend. And when you are definitive and you when you are exact and when you are precise, people say, well, that's dogmatic. That's narrow. How can you believe that? How can you say that? How can you say that all other religions are wrong? I believe ultimately all religions are a path to God. Have you heard that one? That's where we are. And the the more armed we are to understand these pernicious heresies, whether they be clothed with Gnosticism and paganism's real name or not, they're real and they're out to destroy our faith. We need to be armed, don't we? We need to be able to, to sit in a movie house if we go there and be able to say at once, that's Hinduism. That's Buddhism. That's yin and yang. That's what that is. That's contrary to Christianity. Let's get up and walk out of here. Let's not have our children involved in such things. Let's let's arm them. Let's allow them to be defenders of their own faith. This is real. You know, sometimes I think we read in our Bibles... And we read, uh, like Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, about in the latter days, these difficult times will come and there will be these doctrines of demons. And we read this and we say, yes, that's what Paul says. But we don't do the next step and say, where are they? Where are those doctrines? Are they out there? If they are, and Paul says they are, what do they look like? How do they sound? In what kind of dress are they clothed? Dr. Jones is right. We better know it. That's the only way to defend our faith. Father, as we come to the end of this, and what I trust has been both an enlightening and alarming look at what appears to be so harmless. It's just a movie. It's just a book. It's not real, it's fantasy, it's just entertainment. Oh, I pray that these things will be understood for what they really are. And Father, as we look next Sunday night at Hinduism and the New Age movement, I pray that we will be on guard, even this week, to say nothing of the rest of our lives for what's out there, for what's influencing us, for what appears to be harmless but is really so very clever and subtle. This is the enemy at work. May we arm ourselves. May we do exactly what Paul says to take every one of these thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ and His Word. To destroy these lofty speculations raised up against what is true about God. Oh, Lord, forgive us for not being more armed, more ready. May we read and study so that we might know these things. May we watch what our eyes see and 
hear what our ears hear. May we be careful and vigilant. May we do so for our children. May we do so for the next generation and theirs. Lord, please give us a sense in which we are confident in Your truth that we're studying our own Bibles so that we might see some of these things as they come in new dress. May we continue to be those noble Bereans examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Thank You for our time and may we continue to study and be diligent regarding these things. You tell us to do that. Don't let us be lazy. Don't let us be slothful. Allow us to read and study. Find out both from history and in the present where are the jigsaw pieces? How do they fit the puzzle? What am I allowing myself and others around me to listen to, to be exposed to? And may we Speak of these things to others, challenging them to reevaluate how they live. As your heads are bowed, I want to encourage each one of you to examine whether or not you have been unduly influenced by these things. And if so, come to me or one of the other elders and Seek them out and ask for good books to study, good materials to read, pertinent passages from the Scripture that speak to these issues. Lord, if we do these things, You'll be pleased with us because we'll be the ones who are attempting to fight the noble fight, to do our best to determine the schemes of Satan, for we do not need to be ignorant of them. Thank You for arming us. Thank You for allowing us to be watchmen over our families. We pray that You would hasten the day of Your coming so that we might be finished with the battle, having fought the good fight. pray in Christ's name. Amen.